0: Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton.
1: Featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things.
0: I'm here today with my friend and frequent guest, John Tamney, who's a uh, brilliant and bold political economist. And John and I were talking about ideas for my, uh, my startup podcast, and he had a pretty interesting one that I thought we might go with. And the idea is John interviews me. John?
1: Thank you very much, Bill. The idea basically with this is that while people can sit across from Bill and talk about policy, true learning and understanding of policy has to come from talking to people who actually live in the real world who are working in the real world, allocating capital in a world of policy mistakes and also successes. And so the idea in today's podcast is to talk to someone who is in the arena, as it were, and Bill Walton has been in the arena to a T over the years. Let's go over his his resume, however, briefly. He is the founder and chairman of Rappahannock Ventures, a private equity firm, and also Rush River Entertainment, a feature film production company behind The Price of Desire, the Ticket, Max Rose. Um, he is the ch- was the chairman of the investment banking firm Allied Capital for 12 years. Prior to that, he worked for Butler Capital Corporation, the merger and acquisition group of, of Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb and Continental Illinois Bank. Uh, he served in the army before that, working in the Pentagon and went to Indiana University, both undergrad and for graduate school. This is someone from whom all of us can learn a lot and I'm excited about what's about to take place. And so I will begin with a more basic question in creating common ground. What was the impetus for it? And what were there some past influences that have shaped the show as it is today?
0: Well, the, the idea behind this is I've been very fortunate to have come across a lot of very, very smart and, and talented and successful people in the course of my career. Uh I also, as you can maybe more of my background, I've also been involved in the arts and in, in uh, education, and so also outside of finance, and I've got a, a, a wide range of it, wide range of interests. And unlike you, I don't really have the temperament to sit down and crank out a book every year or two. and And yours are quite good, and I, I admire you for that. But I thought a more interesting for me, anyway, choice of a, of a form to to communicate ideas would be a podcast where we could bring in people um, a couple times a week, maybe two to one, two people per show to talk about something. And instead of what we see in the cable channels where people talk about something for 30 seconds or less, or maybe they get a whole minute to talk about something. And then very often they're cast where they're there, uh, you know, somebody in the opposition side is there and you basically see two people yelling at each other. I thought there might be an interest in a long form show. Say forty-five, sixty minutes, where we could dig into topics uh, in depth. Uh, Technology is changing a lot now with, podca- with podcasting. We've got the iPhone, we've got all the different tablets that are out there. People are spending time in the car listening to these things, and I think it's uh, I think it's a big uh, and growing uh, field. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely ahead of things, and I and I think it's important simply
1: because uh, there isn't enough of this discussion. As someone who's on cable TV a lot, it's it you don't get the chance to offer up big ideas. So uh, Uncommon Ground is a very important show that I think is going to influence the debate a lot. Well, and, 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 and also, you know, we're,
0: we're, we're America's highly polarized now. And we've got red meat, hot-button language on both sides. There's a lot in the Internet, I think, that's caused uh, that to be exacerbated. In it. But I think the, the name Common Ground comes from seeing if we can't tease out uh you know, solutions or, or un- understand problems in a way without necessarily uh, barking at each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's, there's a long path before getting to On Common
1: Ground, and I want to jump around a little, and I think it would be interesting, first and foremost, to begin with someone who was legendarily charismatic, specifically William S. Paley, the founder of Columbia Broadcast System. Everyone knows that as CBS. What was he like? What was it like to work for him? What did you learn from him?
0: Well, uh, William Paley was born in 1899, and he uh, came from a family that had been very successful in the cigar business. And he, uh, he grew up uh, in the cigar business traveling to uh, Amsterdam every year with his family buying cigar uh, uh, tobacco uh, for their cigars. And, but he didn't really have the temperament to be a... Uh, a tobacco trader or a cigar maker and you know had a taste for the high life. And in the twenties, nineteen twenties, his family said, Well we we have to do something with Billy. Billy's really not well suited for the cigar business and this new thing called radio was coming along and he had a natural flair for uh music and, and uh film and, and acting and 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 film in those days was silent and then they found a radio station or he Worked on it and then built this. I created this idea of a TV a radio network, which in the 30s and 40s, by the 40s, it became a TV network. And I think the thing that most impressed me with him was he had just incredible charm when he wanted to. He could also be very tough when he wanted to. And he loved the stars in the business. I mean, he was, he had the famous Paley raids in the, in the 30s, I believe, or maybe it was the 40s, where NBC the rival to his CBS at the time, had all the big stars. And over the course of 90 days, he somehow convinced most of them to come over to CBS. And so he had a great love for the talent, love for the actors, love for the medium. And uh, he could be uh, blindingly uh, uh, quick when it came to certain things. His cigar business background showed in everything he did. When I was working with him, we had a... uh, he, of course, had a private jet, and he wanted, as, as his investment guy, he asked me to uh, figure out whether we could find somebody to manage it, and we found somebody I thought was quite good, and he brought him in, and we talked for about an hour, and I thought it was a very pleasant conversation about destinations and, and how the plane was going to be managed, and uh, the young man left the room, and Bill Paley said to me, this guy's making all his money in gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> That's where his margin is. So so he, he was his combination of showman and 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 pennywise businessmen. I don't think you see many com- many people having that talent uh, combined in one human being.
1: Hugely perceptive. Did he ever tell you he had regrets business wise that were obvious ones in
0: retrospect? Or No, Bill Paley didn't really share regrets. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> was... I like it. He was, um, but he did, he was a very kind in, in, in offering advice. I mean, I was much younger than he was when I went to work for him and, uh, he was, he was almost fatherly, which was, which was unusual. Um, now if I'd been president of CBS, uh, and he was the chairman, the presidents of CBS didn't last too long cause he, he liked, uh, he liked being in charge, but I wasn't I was an investment guy. We had a great relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, before Paley, going back in time
1: somewhat, you were in the Army, specifically in the Pentagon, and so you saw, I assume, a lot up close. What did you learn from this that made you think, this is not what I will do in running a business, and did you learn some good things, too?
0: The Pentagon. Uh, what I think the largest uh, office building in the world, in terms of square feet, I think it's... Uh, it's a, it's a daunting place to be in because you walk for miles and miles in these corridors um uh, i I think, I think i think i learned that i didn't want to be a career bureaucrat that was part of the answer because for example i had a job in the adjutant general's office and it was an interesting job i was the uh listed clerk in charge of the army's investigation in the milai incident mm-hmm. and as such, they were having trials at the time, and I was the person responsible for seeing that certain kind of documents that lawyers had requested could get to them, and I was sort of the librarian for the investigation. But I was housed in the same same office as the declassification clerks uh, for the Army. And at the time, this was 1973, they were working on declassifying documents from 1914. And so they were they were bureaucrats living, uh, you know, 50 years earlier, <laughs> figuring uh-huh. out whether something was still sensitive information. I thought, gee, that, that may be great for some people, but not, not me, not, mm-hmm. not, not for me. And so being, being in this position cured you of the desire,
1: plainly, to, to work in government. Uh, it, it did, and, and many other things cured me of mm-hmm. that desire. <laughs> well, so out of business school, your first stop was Continental Bank. Um, a very famous bank. It's 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 something that the books have been written about. What was the atmosphere like? What did you learn? And I'd love to hear specifically, how has the face of banking changed today in your estimation
0: relative to what you experienced back then? Well, I, I think the, the the banking business has changed enormously. At the time I was there, it was in mid-70s, early 80s. Uh, it was still pretty much the banking business that had been since the uh since the depression and there was a saying about bankers that you know good the banking business was such that you lent money at two per or you borrowed money at two percent you lent money at five percent and you were on the golf course at three and it was the three five for three you know two five three rule and so <laughs> banking was not exactly a, a go go business but nor did I think it should be, but it was very different in the sense say from today in that the, you knew all the borrowers and you knew all the customers who were depositing money. It was a very personal business. And Mm -hmm. we did, we made loans to people we knew. And consequently, I think we took better risks because we could assess not just the, uh, the numbers, but also the human being that was going to be the borrower. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you learn right then? Was that another, precisely because it was a two, five, three was your feeling then that that's not what you wanted to be? And was, was, was it rewarding
0: your talents? Not enough? Or, well, you know, I guess I could, I could be accused of being an ambitious young man and it just, it was a pretty sleepy business. Mm-hmm. And there was a, I, I felt I wanted to be more uh, in an entrepreneurial world and I was eager to get to, uh, to wall street mm-hmm. and, I'd go into Indiana, which is a Big Ten school, and Wall Street in the mid '70s didn't recruit. Well, it really didn't recruit much out of the Ivy Leagues or out of the, uh, you know, out from out of the families that own the small investment banks. And so I viewed the, the Continental Bank as something that you you decide to do in a in a career move where you say, "Gee, I'll I'll start out here mm-hmm. and I'll I'll try to do well, and I'm going to learn the skills of lending. I'm going to learn the skills of." assessing um, entrepreneurs' characters and borrowing and learned basically the commercial world, which I didn't know that much about coming straight out of business school. And I learned a lot of that. And I think the, uh, the things I, lear- I learned at Continental, though, enabled me to get a job at Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb after about five years at the bank. And that was where I wanted to be uh, anyway. So it took me a little while to get there, but, uh, you know,
1: I got there. So you would say that the time at Continental, it, it made you a better investment banker? Oh, absolutely.
0: Lehman? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think I think the thing you see in banking, particularly the banking, I was doing. They, I was asked to go to New York to work in the derivatives group. I don't think they called it that at the time, but highly technical finance. And instead, I was more interested in entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. I said, I want to go to the Steels and Wheels group in Chicago. Uh-huh. And the, the <laughs> Steels and Wheels group was... Uh, uh, the customers were automobile dealers and uh, and and people who owned um, uh, steel um, service centers, warehouses for steel, and they're all owner-operated, and they were all mostly started by somebody or somebody's parent or things of like that. And I got to know them all very well in terms of how they ran their businesses day to day, and got mm-hmm. to assess in. Um, in that process, you know, how, who's a good businessman in terms of, you know, allocating capital, who's good in terms of marketing. I think, yeah, the, the experience was invaluable, it was, mm-hmm. but it was a very personal human experience. And I became, became friends with a lot of my borrowers. Mm-hmm. Now, I always tell people that
1: Lehman Brothers, particularly when you were there from, it was 81 to 84. Yeah. It was, it was Lehman Brothers, Coom but it's still a private partnership. Mm-hmm. And it was the Goldman Sachs, it was Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs was Goldman Sachs. I always try to point out to people that Tom Hill was there, Pete Peterson, some of the best investment bankers ever were in New York, where you were at the time. What was your thought on them? Was it a huge learning experience working for them? What were they? What what
0: did they teach you? uh well, Steve Schwarzman was also there. Also, yes, he was in M and A Group and Eric Gleecher and. Uh... Uh, We had a lot of people that went off to uh, uh, set up even greater uh, greater firms, although Lehman Brothers and Loeb um, Was just one of the best firms when I was when I was there got sold in 1984 Um, What did I learn? I think one of the most interesting things I learned as pertains to the crisis We just went through in 2008 2009 was that I was there. It was a private partnership there maybe 50 partners and they were all required to leave their capital in the firm. So you get paid a big, bo- you get paid a small salary, maybe get a big bonus at the end of the year. But that firm, but that bonus went to buy preferred stock, which stayed in the firm. Mm. And we had two cultures in the firm. We had an investment banking culture, which was sort of working with clients and taking companies public and or uh, you know raising capital. And then we had a trading culture. Mm. And the risks in the trading culture are pretty obvious. You make a bet, either long or short on something like that, then if it works, you make money. If it doesn't, you know, you can lose everything. And so there's a lot of risks, and you've got to hedge your risk, and you've got to do it properly. In the investment banking side, it's more reputation risk. It's more who you choose as a client. And this is where sort of the background I had at Continental Bank was helpful in assessing, you know, character of potential uh, clients. But the, the, the culture was such that the traders were worried that the uh, – Uh, investment bankers were going to take on clients that weren't uh, worthy of the firm's brand. And the investment banker side were afraid the traders were going to make bets that they didn't, uh, they didn't think they should make. And so the partners would get the balance sheet of the firm every day. Mm -hmm. And I remember the partner I worked for, I got to be senior vice president. I was one level below partner and he would, he would get that balance sheet and he would look at it. He would make sure that the trading positions were there, and I think on the trading side, they're doing a lot of the same things. They'd get <laughs> the client list about who we were thinking of bringing in as a client so because everybody had their own money in the firm, our leverage was like five to one you know a dollar five dollars of debt to maybe a dollar of equity, something like that, there just weren't any big risks taken, and mm-hmm. consequently it was a much more stable business at the time I was there, there were probably Oh, I don't know. In 1960, there were probably two or three hundred small investment banks raising capital for people, putting together mergers and things like that. But then what happened in the 80s, about the time I was there, uh, they figured out how to raise public capital. And when they brought in the public capital, they, the argument was we can do more business. We can make, be in more businesses. We can uh, grow bigger, faster, make more money. Uh, and that's true. Yeah. But what happened was they no longer had their own money. In the firm, and so I think you saw what what the big word for it is agency risks, where you had people in the firm running the firm that didn't really have all of their capital tied up in it. Yeah, now, they still had a lot, and I think a lot of the investment bankers went through a lot of pain in uh, 2008, 2009 because they still had a lot of funds in, but they yeah. had an awful lot that that wasn't in the firm, and yeah. I think uh, I think that's a that's a cultural difference between. Um, then and now, and it was also the cultural difference between going from a commercial banking to investment banking when you had private partners. The commercial banking culture, you're really working in an institution, and so the incentives or incentives and motives were, uh, were different. Mm-hmm. What's your
1: response? To, to me, investment banking is one of the most important, in, but also least understood professions in the world. I always say it's one thing to come up with a business idea. It's one thing to come up with an expansion idea. It's quite another to find capital. Investment bankers are paid well precisely because they can do what few can do. Mm-hmm. What's your response when you read in the Wall Street Journal about easy money and easy
0: credit? Do you take that seriously?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think anything's easy. You mean easy money is in uh, as, as what the uh, oh you mean what the uh, Federal Reserve is doing or you
1: know. uh, uh, journalists would give the impression that somehow it's easy out there and i it's easy for businesses to raise money. And I would guess that someone in your position who's seen this over the years,
0: that in fact, it's very difficult to do. Uh, well, uh, you and I talked about this during your show on, uh, I think we talked about your idea of credit mm-hmm. and credit, something that that you have as a borrower it's not something a lender or an investment banker gives you and yeah it's pretty easy to raise money if you're apple yeah. or if you're uh microsoft or if you're you know google i suppose if you want to raise money that's easy to do so if you've got a franchise like that capital's abundant but for most companies and most startups they're not in that mode and so raising capital um is difficult time consuming and you know the banker if the, doing a good job is the person that can put the company that they think has some promise together with the investors who who uh, would be interested in that mm-hmm. and uh, I, so i i don't think it's easy i think many as i used to say when we were you know i managed a lot of investment professionals and, and a lot of people wanted to be in the business but it's mm-hmm. extremely complicated you've got to do, do a lot of uh a lot of hard analysis and have to be pretty good at math and, and pretty good at uh, negotiation. And, and, uh, it's not something everybody can do. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's
1: talked about enough how difficult this is. And I, and, and I hate the perception that's been created now thinking about you ultimately moved on into your own investment banking shop. What, what made you do that? Was that a scary thing? Uh,
0: well, I, I, you know, I, my resume is such that I, I tend to do something and then I think I've achieved mastery. I want to try to move on to something that's maybe a, a little tougher, a little newer, maybe a, bit, a little bigger challenge. And I found myself in the late 80s working at a uh, private equity firm, uh, Butler Capital, uh, started and run by Gil Butler, who's an investment genius. And our business then was investing money in private companies as a private equity investor. And one of the things that struck me was one of the companies that we invested in was called Silvestri and run by a really neat entrepreneur named Steve Berkowitz. And they were we were everybody's always talking about, you know, Steve, he's great. He's a triple threat. He can manage people. He can uh, do numbers and he can, he can market. And, at that time, I was thinking I wanted to move out of investment banking into something where I was running something, mm-hmm. and since I had no background in running something particularly, <laughs> I wasn't exactly an obvious hire. So I thought, well, gee, I think I could do what Steve does, and so I I went out and set up my own little boutique and called mm-hmm. Walton Kennedy, and uh, you know I've sort of been working for myself in many ways ever since. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. had to I had to do it on my own. It was it was I didn't think. In your tr- in your world, I don't think I had the street cred or the credit mm-hmm. to go to somebody and say, "Let me run your company." I decided, well, I maybe need to just start one of on my own and and see how it goes. What were the early days like? Did you find
1: yourself sometimes regretting it, or did you it, was it something you took to right away?
0: I never regretted it, but it wasn't uh-huh. easy. I st- we started the private equity firm in 1990. One ninety-two, I think, and it was right in the middle of one of the famous recessions we have, where you couldn't get anything financed. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple deals that were close to uh, close to uh, uh, closing, and they didn't happen because the one thing financing fell through, and the entrepreneur changed their mind. It was always difficult, but I mm-hmm. I always enjoyed it.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that one of the most important things I ever heard was from a former very successful trader in the Chicago Merc. He made the point that if you're good at, what, good at this business, you'll be wrong 51% of the time. If you're great, just about every one of your trading ideas will be incorrect, but you'll get more right than you'll get wrong. Right. Venture capital, I've heard that the batting average uh, for failure is about 900. Where is it in private equity? We're talking about a very difficult business, correct?
0: I think the batting average in private equity is higher because you're betting more on established companies and you're analyzing cash flow and you're looking at markets that already exist and products that already have customer acceptance of some some site some type and companies have typically been around for several years, maybe sometimes a lot more mm-hmm. venture capital it's more an idea concept an entrepreneur and the 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 trade there though is that the venture capital when it works. The returns can be exponentially mm-hmm. higher, mm-hmm. you know, hundred times, thousand times higher mm-hmm. than in a home run private equity deal. Mm-hmm. And so, I think generally the batting averages are higher in private equity, but the average returns are, are somewhat lower. Mm-hmm. And now today, uh, that field is so crowded and capital is so abundant that I, you know, I don't. I think it's still it it's it it still can be a good business, but it's it's uh, it's it's very competitive. Mm-hmm. Now, you're also uh, quite the movie producer.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I would hardly say that. <laughs> I always go back to um, Brian Grazer's point that with his, yeah. he's got this amazing track record. Splash, Beautiful Mind, Parenthood, very successful TV shows. He says he can't get his ideas funded ninety percent of the time. Is his broader point that he doesn't get to that this
0: is an incredibly difficult business to call? Well, I let me let me. Uh, Let me just say at the outset, before I went to business school, I was working in New York and Washington, D.C. as a a wannabe actor and director and things like that. So I had an interest in theater and film from my early 20s. But then when I went to business school, I more or less, I said, I I focused on finance and investments, and uh, that's pretty much what I did. Mm -hmm. And then when we merged Allied Capital with Aries Capital in 2010, Uh, You know, there's a part of me that said, gee, I really wonder if I could have produced movies or done things like that, and it was was a fascinating experience, and I'm glad I did it, but it's a very, very tough business, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, our movies, uh, two of the three movies I was involved in, I think, are quite good. One of them could could have been better. I learned the difference between uh, a final cut and not having final cut, Uh and... (laughs) If you have final cut, you get last word on what the movie looks mm-hmm. like. If you don't have it, somebody else does. And if their opinion isn't the right one, you can lose a lot of money. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think movies are very difficult, for, particularly for independence because, mm-hmm. you know, movies are very, you know, Hollywood's a very, very small shop. It's a very social shop. And, you know, yeah. there, are guys, there are guys and gals playing poker together on Tuesday night someplace. And, in um, uh, west hollywood and they get to know each other and there's a very very um it's a small industry in Mm -hmm. that regard and then the other side of it though is you go on the sets or you you know you go out afterwards and you're involved in this thing and it's a lot of fun they're great people everybody on the set loves loves doing it they wouldn't Mm -hmm. be anyplace else it's a great band of uh of artist gypsies and it's, it's great fun to uh to be part of it and the but let me let me go from an and to a but the 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 issue with movies is you're making a product, a single movie, a ninety to 20, 120 minute product, and you you get it, you know, finance, you put it together, you produce it, you go into post production, you get it distributed, and everything's really behind that one product and there's no mm-hmm. other next product. And so if it if it works, you've got some sort of upside in that one movie, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And I think you see you're seeing a lot of the creative talent than the financial uh, um people with financial acumen moving into into tv or they already have Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know i think cable right now the long form the binge watching uh series on netflix is really i think where most of the talent is so i thoroughly enjoyed producing a movie Uh, at least maybe i didn't enjoy it financially but i enjoyed every (laughs) other aspect of it uh but I, I, would, I would argue people which ought to think more of those long form, uh, series, which is, I think, uh, uh, where the, where the future is today.
1: I once asked an actor, why don't you direct? And he said, you have no idea yeah. how difficult it is to be a director. I'll just, I'll ask you this. What's your perception of the director having made movies?
0: Well, I agree with your friend, <laughs> um, but it's not just the director, is he? Well, yeah, the director on the set is uh, uh, it, its unbelievably complex because you've got sound, you've got the actors, you've got the cinematography, you've got the storytelling, you've got all of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my own experience is maybe an, an example of this. I, <laughs> I, I invested, I put a small amount of money with, with some local film entrepreneurs. They made sci-fi and fantasy uh, uh, films, shorts, and... You know, I, as you know from my background, I spent, you know, decades running things, being in charge, and, and which I enjoy. But there's a certain point at which you really don't want to be in charge. And I'll never forget the moment when I was on the set of one of these little shorts, and I was playing, I think I was playing the heavy. I was playing the bad guy, which was which fun. And I i was there, and I was watching this guy run around doing things, and I'm th- I was thinking, gee, I'm only glad I have to remember my lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such such difficult work. Um, yeah. Well, it's fun though. I mean, it's yeah. it's highly uh, it's uh, it's it's worth it's worth the aggravation. Uh huh.
1: I like. Well, I, lo- I love that point about how it's only knowing the lines because that that was the actor's point to me. He didn't mm-hmm. he didn't say it quite that way, but he said that that's a really now kind of changing gears. I know you through the policy world. Uh, obviously, you're a longtime benefactor for all sorts of organizations. And where I'd like to begin there is what shaped your political views? How long have you felt, have you been a, a believer in free enterprise and freedom
0: in general? I think I was not particularly political for most of my most of my career, most of my life. I'm not all that active, but I think the thing that shaped my views was running a public company. And, you know, what I came to appreciate running a public company, and this would have been around... I think I started around 1997, and what I came to appreciate was the regulatory climate that a public company operates in, and not only the the laws or the regs, but also the personal attitude towards business, and, you know, in the, in the 80s, we had entrepreneurs who were pretty much lionized, and I think that, that was true, and we had Inc. Magazine and Money Magazine, and, and maybe it wasn't money, but it was something something along those lines, and uh, you know the entrepreneur the wealth creator was was a was a hero and that's still that remains my view but i think with the public company world and particularly with uh with Enron and WorldCom and uh i can't remember the third third member of that group Otaiko, mm-hmm. um, all blowing up because of fraud in the ceo suite in 19 uh was it 1999 or I'm, I'm dating. Yeah, 2000, 2001. I'm, I'm losing my years. Anyway, uh-uh. I think at that point, yeah, I saw public opinion sway hard and strong against free enterprise, and I saw a regulatory climate that was increasingly hostile to uh, the market, and and that and and, and 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 by that I mean regulatory climate. If you run a public company. There's things like Sarbanes Oxley. There's Section 404. There's all these things you've got to do that keep you. They're supposed to keep the company safer, in my view. Don't really do that, but they detract from your ability to uh, to create businesses. And uh, so, I, I think that got me into thinking more about politics and which side I lined up on. And um, so, I find myself uh, uh, more of a libertarian. Uh, mm-hmm although now I've come to view also not only uh, the libertarian views, but I think also some of the social issues are, are, are vital to this country. I think we need strong families. I think we need, um, uh, you know, respect for life, things like that. So it's, it's, it's uh, uh, I've evolved probably in the last 15, you know, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: it's, it's interesting that you bring up Sarbanes-Oxley, and, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like it's been forgotten uh how damaging it was when it passed what well, that was back in 2002 and George W Bush said this is the toughest anti-business crime law since FDR is this something that and still it did, weighs? Nothing. It, did it did nothing nothing nothing,
0: not. nothing to prevent 2008 mm-hmm.
1: nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. is it something it's, that, it, it, those were generals fighting the last war. As they, as they always do. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to say that the people regulating the business, whatever sector, are those who couldn't get a job in that sector in the first place. So you're, that, you're, that,
0: that sounds true. I, you're I, asking? I,
1: I concur with that. Is it something, uh, I think it's unfortunate that no one's talking about it. What do you think the impact would be, someone who's, who's in the world, if we finally repealed it? Is, would, it would it be a, a noticeable impact for businesses? Or have they gotten
0: used to it? Well, I think the big ones have gotten used to it because they can afford it. Mm-hmm. The thing to keep in mind is that in the public company world, there are half as many public companies now as there were 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the reason is the regulations like Sarbanes-Oxley, where you're required to do all this extra accounting work. um, uh, Incur enormous cost burden, particularly in a small company. So, if you you know, 25 years ago, you might have thought about going public with five men in profit, and but now Sarbanes Oxley, some people estimate, would would cut that profit in half, and so you can't, you don't want to go public because you're going to incur all these other, uh, these other, uh, these other costs and obligations. Yeah. And so, you takes Sarbanes Oxley, and then there are other rules that change. Like there used to be rules in investment banking where investment banks, uh, or for investment bankings were, 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 uh, they could make say five cents on each trade of a stock. Well, then it made a lot of, made a lot of sense to be in that business because Mm -hmm. you could make a profit, uh, changing, uh, you know, trading stock. And then they decided in their wisdom that that was not good because the investment bankers are making too much money. So they created the so-called penny rule Mm -hmm. where, uh, you couldn't make much money trading in small stocks, and so the number of people supporting the stock went away. The research coverage went away, our, our, our research coverage went away, mm-hmm. and so it's not just Sarbanes Oxley; it's it's the whole trading environment. And then now with Dodd Frank, uh, the ability of upstart investment banks to get into the business is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Dodd Frank, I mean Jamie Dimon and. Lloyd Blankfein uh, will say, you know, Dodd-Frank is great for us. It's created a regulatory moat around our business using mm-hmm. Warren Buffett's idea about a moat that keeps people out of your uh, your castle. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just that, but, I, you know, there are probably seven or eight things you'd want to unwind. But I don't see a real constituency for it right now. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: thinking about this, and so being in the business world and, and seeing the different uh uh political policy actions that that made life more difficult. If you could tell Paul Ryan, who would probably agree much more with you than the average person, if you could tell him one thing that he perhaps doesn't know, what would you like to tell him? What is he missing uh policy wise that would have a big impact?
0: Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> John, you promised easy questions. <laughs> well, you know. I can't. <laughs> I, I don't, I think Paul has a very big brain. He knows a lot. I don't know what he doesn't know. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, he, <laughs> let me rephrase that. What he could do right now is we could just get a good tax cut. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think if we put all of our eggs in that basket and got a 15% rate on uh, corporations, we'd see an investment boom in this country. Like we've, like we haven't seen since the good old days. Mm-hmm. And we could get our economic growth rate up from an one5 or 2% to three and a half, four percent 4%, maybe more, mm-hmm. because you'd have lots of capital coming back into the United States that's been driven out by the high tax rates. Um, the You'd have uh, a major incentive. They'd have all that much more capital to reinvest because they're paying less taxes. Uh, and I, I think Paul could... Uh, Paul could do that. Mm-hmm. What, if, what if it's uh, Nancy
1: Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer sitting in my seat? What would you like to tell them that they don't know? Or, the, and again, this is not a bad thing. It's more, what would you like them to know that if they perhaps knew
0: it, they might change their view of the world? That economic growth is a good thing and that they can do a lot to make that happen. And if the economy is growing robustly, um, they'll have a lot more money to play with because they're gonna be collecting that much more tax revenues. And mm-hmm. they ought to be thinking about the policies they've enacted or the things they've blocked um, that, that slow economic growth. Mm-hmm. And I think I would also stop demonizing the wealth creators. I mean, we, I don't know Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer in particular, but you got Elizabeth Warren saying, you didn't build that to an mm-hmm. entrepreneur. Um uh it's uh it it is not exactly motivating. <laughs> I don't want to live in a world
1: without Jeff Bezos among many other great wealth creators. Sure, yeah. <laughs> now thinking about all this, the media have created all sorts of perceptions of Donald Trump. They do this with any political figure. You obviously were a major uh, part of his transition to mm-hmm. the White House. What do people not know about him that they should? And what do you think might change their mind if they knew it?
0: Well, I think one thing they ought to say, I know is he really does listen. I mean, he, he's not somebody that sits in a meeting and, and barks at people. He really does listen. He takes in a lot of information, and um, you know, I think his ability to to learn new mm-hmm. things and 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 uh, and act on them is is is, is, is evident in, in his, in his entrepreneurial career. And I think he's, he's showing some ability to learn in office, but, you know, I think his, I'm in a school where I think his tweets got him elected. Mm -hmm. They got him to go, they got, he got his message out directly, but he also forced forces the media to cover him. Mm -hmm. And that's still true. Uh, But I just wish I could edit his tweets. Uh I mean, (laughs) announcing LVGT policy in the series of three tweets (laughs) Uh, is is not is not uh, is not the way you do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose the tweets got him elected, also made him do those other ones. So yeah, it's, your you, characteristic you, you, you 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 package. Are, yeah, I mean it's a package. You, you <laughs> yeah. know, you can't you can't take you say well, I like this piece of him, but I don't like this other piece of him. It, you know, people don't people aren't built that way. Who's your favorite president of all time? Calvin Coolidge. Why? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, I think Calvin Coolidge had the view that 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 the things could run pretty well if people just tended to their own affairs and uh he was a very articulate man he was actually quite a good speech writer although he didn't give a lot of them but he was very very good at that and he kept he kept uh, he kept government in a, in a place where it was it was supporting people and and not not intruding and uh i think he would probably uh yeah he's in my pantheon mm-hmm.
1: If I made you dictator for a day and I think I know one of the policies, what would be your top three policy changes that you think if you could just do three that would have the biggest impact uh, on economic growth specifically?
0: Uh, I think the biggest thing I do is not economic per se. It's if I were dictator, mm-hmm. do I get the states as well as the federal? You get it all. I get it all? Yeah. For a day. I would, I would, I would bring about radical reform in education. And I think that's the biggest opportunity. I think we've got issues with people worrying about, uh, you know, what happens with automation and when trucks are driven by computers and not by people that we're going to have people to employ. I think I think what the government-run schools and the teachers unions have done, in particular in inner cities, is uh, just a just a tragedy. And I would I would I would free up the schools, and not just choice, but I would I would really break the lock of the unions, I'd break the lock of certification, I'd break the lock of uh, accreditation, and I would open up uh, education to people who could prove they could produce uh, uh, economic results mm. and, and not have a one-size-fits-all all system. And, you know, people have this talent, they go to this kind of school, and, and, you, and you open it up to the market. Because mm. uh, I think education is definitely something that could be uh, improved by competition and market forces. And there's very little of that now. And after that, I don't. My next two, if I did that, I'd probably rest on my laurels because <laughs> the rest of it might take care of itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you optimistic? Oh gosh, I'm optimistic for people. I'm sort of the opposite. You know, there's this thing about the great intellectuals that they they love mankind, but not, but not not people individually. I kind of like people. I'm optimistic about people I meet. I'm optimistic that we can make things happen. I love working in organizations where you can get together with people. My favorite word is getting together a work group where you work with people to make something happen. I'm very optimistic about people's ability to bring about solutions in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Where I get pessimistic is where I think we try to order something like re-regulating one-fifth of our economy, like health care, which is impossible. There's no human brain that can comprehend that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get the smartest hundred people in healthcare in the world, and they still couldn't agree or figure out what a system is. They, we've ignored the individual solutions. The people closest to the problem uh, being being the problem solvers. And so I, I'd be optimistic to the extent we can we can make that happen. I mean, mm-hmm. in, a, in a political world that involves federalism, that means pushing more experimentation of all things and new things back to states and so if you vermont can try one thing and texas can try another and we see what works best and and there's a there's i think in in business it's true and in the military it's true you very often delegate the decision making to the people closest to the problem Mm -hmm. in germany for example one of the reasons they think the german manufacturing machine works so well is the people on the on the, on, the, on the lines in the, in the factories are very close to just making decisions about how to use them and how to change them and how to do things. And you know where their model came from? It came from the military, where <laughs> the, the sergeants in the German army were the ones often delegated the most power on the battlefield to make decisions. And Germany, most people don't know this, probably won World War I until the United States came in. And yeah. they did it because they were organized to be close to the action. Well, it's an essential point. Uh, Business mistakes
1: are born by the businesses themselves. Federal mistakes are suffered by all of us. And so I think you're hitting on something really important in bringing this back, bringing most decision-making back local. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this. This, this was uh, very educational for me. and
0: it's Educational for me, too. <laughs> for the viewers, too.
1: Thank you for this. Uh, thank yeah. you for letting me sit sort of in your chair today. Well, you're in my chair. That's okay. <laughs>
0: All right, John, thanks.
1: Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes.